Belarus has changed for the last three days. Uh, it, it will change uh, forever and it will never get back as it was before. First of all, um, there is a war or pre-war situation in the country. Dear friends, uh, welcome to another edition of a Forum 2000 chat. Uh, today, my guest is Frana Kvyatorka, and I guess a man of many hats. Uh, Frana, you are a journalist. You describe yourself as a digital media strategist. You are also a public speaker. You're an advocate. Uh, you really uh, do wear multiple hats. Um, but I actually would like to start um, today's interview with a tweet um, that you sent yesterday uh, where you say that this is one of the darkest days in um, the history of Belarus, of modern history of Belarus. And I would like to ask you to follow up on that. What's happening in Belarus right now? Um, can you please describe um, the election, but more so the protests that have been going on for the last two days? What's your take? Uh, I think Belarus has changed for the last three days. Uh, it, it will change uh, forever and it will never get back as it was before. First of all, um, there is a war or pre-war situation in the country, not just in Minsk, but also in regional cities. Such polarization, such anger, such desperation uh, um, that, that, that exists that we can see right now uh, in Belarus, I never saw before and I couldn't imagine it could be. Belarusians are super peaceful. They avoid conflicts by all means. But now they are at war. And this war was launched by, by the government. By the government literally uh, introducing army, uh, internal troops, uh, special forces uh, to the streets of Belarus cities. And unfortunately, um, this, is, this is not going uh, to, to, to end soon. Unfortunately, it will not be peaceful transition. Uh, it looks that President Lukashenko uh, decided to protect his presidency by all means. Uh, he, he is ready to kill people if needed. And, um, and it seems that uh, losing, he lost the popular support, but, but he didn't lose control over the law enforcement and army. Uh, and, and this is why the, the military um, uh, currently are, are, um, are the main uh, speakers on, on his behalf. And do you think any external intervention um, in terms of diplomatic discussion or any kind of you know, influence from abroad may change his behavior or his approach to this? Because if, if things continue as you describe them to continue, this is really looks as something that we're going to watch for the next days. What's your, um, what do you think of, of, of any possibility of change in the status quo? Uh, first of all, I, I'd like to encourage uh, viewers to not compare Belarus situation to Ukraine, to um, Armenia, to Georgia, to any other color revolution, and neither to Hong Kong. That's very unique, very unique special case with very different context. Uh, so even if we see these people on the streets building barricades, it doesn't mean they're controlling the streets. People in Maidan, uh, in Ukraine 2014, they managed to keep control over the city downtown for months. 
before the crackdown starts. In Belarus, uh, people have 15 minutes to build barricade and to take decision, and afterwards they go to, to prison for years. And uh, people who are going right now to the streets, uh, they are uh, risking with everything. The other system doesn't forgive um, betrayal. The regime is very cruel about everyone who, who openly, publicly um, goes against it. Um, the foreign reaction matters, but first of all, in terms of uh, possible sanctions of Lukashenko and his cronies. Uh, for now, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Belarus, it seems to me, uh, it is it is uh, blocked. It is not heard. It doesn't exist. You know, at this moment, only Ministry of Interior, KGB, uh, Administration of President, they are um, taking decision. They are um, participating in the strategic meetings. And uh, all these uh, foreign statements, resolutions by Germany, Brussels, Washington, they even do not uh, reach uh, the um, receiver. I'm sure that Lukashenko doesn't care right now. He's so busy with um, uh, shooting people, you know, and dispersing protesters in, in Minsk and regions that he doesn't care even about, uh, you know, the, the statement made by Trump or our um, European Parliament. Um, let's let's uh, see if if the West will be able to prepare consolidated position and reaction towards Lukashenko, and uh, this reaction it, it must play the deterring effect. It should prevent uh, the escalation of the of the situation, escalation of repressions. It must stop uh, Lukashenko from from killing people primarily, because uh, when we see the dynamic from the Sunday Thursday of protest. Uh, until to, to yesterday, yesterday night, uh, it seems that they are ready to shoot not with rubber bullets but with real bullets, and they they are ready to to uh, to put tanks on the streets if if needed. So, if the situation gets far more desperate than what it already is now, um, the reaction, the reactions may may start coming in. Um, but it's a pity that it's it's been mostly in, in international news, but not uh, no further actions have been taken. Um, which brings me to my next question. And I think this is a statement, a quote. I, I guess it's, it's become a staple in the conversation uh, when you mentioned Belarus, and that is, you know, Belarus is the last standing dictatorship of Europe. Um, and I really dislike how it's described, but also I'm really curious. I mean, this has been a situation, this has been an ongoing situation, right? This, the political um, standstill and the fact that he's been getting reelected and the, the fact that you know, the situation with human rights and female expression um, hasn't been improving over the years. Um, and yet, you know, we haven't really seen much reaction even before. So I'm just really interested to hear what you think of, you know, where did you know, Europe made a mistake if it did um, in relationship and especially in political relationship with, with Belarus. Could this particular situation that we're seeing now could have been averted had there been a different kind of approach um, to the government, to the leadership, to its decision making? Inconsistency. This is the major mistake and this is the major factor why repression did happen in Belarus right now. The European politicians, especially every new generation of uh, European parliamentarians, they believe they can appease the dictator. They can talk to them, they can meet him, they can invite him to European states, 
and he will uh, he will change. He will be reeducated. They didn't realize that they are um, working with a political animal, with one of the most experienced uh, politician in the world, perhaps, who who is playing a geopolitical seesaw for three decades. And Lukashenko was always um, master of manipulation, of sending right messages at the right moment, at the right time, so everyone is happy and everyone hears what he or she wants to hear. Uh, Europeans uh, did make some statements after crackdowns, but later, after one or two years, they began the dialogue, collaboration again and again. And this helped Lukashenko to, to, to stay in power for so long, because there was no a moment for these 26 years when Lukashenko got really uh, put uh, in front of the choice or to make reforms, democratic reforms, or um, to step down. He was always given half measures. Uh, always, uh, all, all the positions, all the strategies were, were uh, partial. Uh, no unified strategy between Washington and Brussels uh, came out towards Belarus. It was always disorganized. Um, Lukashenko uh, perfectly understood that the West is afraid of Russia much more than of uh, Lukashenko's dictatorship. And Lukashenko was selling this anti-Russian card to Brussels and, and Washington for the last four years. He was spreading the narrative that I'm protector of the independence. And same time, he was signing their integration roadmaps, uh, putting Belarus in the um, forever dependent, dependence uh, political, economical, cultural uh, dependence uh, from, from Russia. And uh, last years, we even say that Belarusian, um, Belarus came uh, to, to, to the process of Azerbaijanization, we say it. You know, that when everyone recognizes it's not democracy, but still, um, but still uh, make business with the leadership. It, it's the position of the desperate person who lost any hope to change the situation. That happened to Azerbaijan many years ago, and, and the West just closed the, the, its eyes on, on political prisoners, on repressions in Azerbaijan, and they realized, you know, better like this than, than instability or, or Russia. And something like this was happening in Belarus till recently, uh, but definitely this protest, they, they are changing a lot, and, and uh, many things depend on, on, the, uh, on, on the Western reaction uh, right now. It's it's really interesting that you mentioned this Azerbaijan comparison, um, especially when I was watching actually one of the um, documentary films that you've shared on your website. And in one, um, there's a quote uh, of Lukashenko, Lukashenko actually giving an interview where he says he disagrees uh, with countries that describe him as a dictator and the country as a dictatorship, uh, because in order to be a dictator, you need resources. And when you look at Azerbaijan, uh, it's it's basically a similar, you know, it's 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 pretty much the same, except the you know there is also the fact of resources. But we see that you know having resources or not having resources actually doesn't really make much sense in terms of how these um, these leaderships are treated, how they're viewed, and how much room they're given um, when it comes to diplomatic relationship. Uh, let me just put it that way. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that up. That was a really interesting, um, and also a comparison that I've heard uh, many times. Um, now let's, let's zoom out a little bit from, from what is happening, but still stay on the topic. Um, I've been following up most of the, um, events via Twitter and a lot of the tweets that I'm reading are from 
local journalists, local news platforms. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit on the importance of having these independent pockets of news reporters, bloggers who've been on the ground, who've been filming, who've been streaming, uh, despite the internet shutdown uh, or is internet back? Can you please, you know, give us a little bit of um, of that picture? What's what's happening in terms of um, yeah, in terms of coverage of, of the protests and the election. I would say this is a revolution, not only democratic, uh, this revolt is also uh, digital, and it would be impossible without digital tools. In 2006, 2010, we, we, we had similar situation in terms of popular um, anger, and, uh, and uh, many people also gathered in Minsk uh, to protest against Lukashenko, but they didn't have uh, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Telegram primarily. Now people are weaponized, weaponized with the tools to communicate freely and securely. And this, um, uh, this, this um, actually enabled uh, also uh, the, the broadening of the protest uh, uh, around the country. When before only Minsk was covered, now we see protests even in, in the cities with 15,000 um, population. Uh, what, uh, what's happening? Government understands that they are losing in the media space. The traditional TV channels, they invested so much, so heavily for the last 26 years, they are useless. No one really watched them. No one really believes. No one really trusts them. And the propaganda machine that we're relying on print and, and uh, TV, uh, just um, it, it just became uh, the, the, the circus, you know. Uh, all, perhaps on the opposition, they are reading this this propaganda publications, you know, just to make jokes uh, about this. Uh, but all the real information flows are happening on messengers, for example, even not on Facebook or or Instagram, but on messengers. The product called um, Telegram, which uh, which is developed by Pavel Durov, and which was blocked in Russia for uh, for several years, but now they unblock it. Uh, after they took control over it, they unblocked it in Russia. But Belarus is perhaps the only one country where Telegram app uh, is serving for democracy forces. In Ukraine, in Russia, in other countries, it is controlled by propaganda, by um, KGB, by special security forces. But in Belarus, Telegram is the tool of democratic activists. And uh, authorities, understanding this, they, they, they shut down the internet. They just wanted to take the main weapon from protesters and put them in the offline space. And in the offline space, these activists, without their iPhones, they are very weak. They don't have anything. They don't know how to fight. You know, they were never um, having clashes with the uh, riot police. They are not French protesters. You know, who know how to build barricades, how to make Molotov cocktails or whatever. Belarusians protesters, they don't know anything except how to. How to work with iPhone, you know, and to, to post on Twitter and, and Instagram, and and uh, this is why this protest uh, is losing right now to, to brutal force of the regime. Um, this is really interesting uh, because I remember watching one of your interviews. I think this was in 2019. Uh, I think it was in, in in Kiev, Ukraine, when you were talking about the future of journalism in in Belarus, and you you were you were talking about equipping journalists and, and bloggers with these new innovative tools um, in order to have 
you know, better and more secure communication among each other, but also have better access to the people because that's where people are. They read news online and whatnot. And now we're seeing sort of the opposite, um, that despite the tools, despite making the stories and news heard about what's happening, they're also losing ground. And I'm curious. I think this is something that, you know, we're seeing and not just in Belarus, but in many other countries where internet shutdowns are becoming very common. There is a, a massive international campaign called Keep It On in order to encourage governments across the world where internet shutdowns are common to actually stop doing it, to hold them accountable for these acts. But I'm really curious to hear what you think, you know, in this day and age when internet, as you say, and, you know, these tools, as you say, and the technology, as we all know, is so important, you know, what can journalists actually do? Uh, how, how do you all of a sudden, you know, switch your very usual operational modus to something completely different? Um, do you have any thoughts on this or ideas, or maybe this is something that we need to start thinking about yet again? Uh, let me be honest with you. Uh, we speak a lot about shutdowns, about circumvention tools, and we uh, are investing a lot of funds into uh, these technologies, but we do not promote these tools enough. And what uh, we were talking with my colleagues, journalists, for last three months about the shutdown, about the blackout, about the circumvention, about the security of messengers. And do you know what? When this day came, no one was ready. Because uh, until you, you are put in this situation, you never take it seriously. Yes, in theory, you are cool. And the same with me. I'm cool to speak uh, about this, you know, circumvention tools at different conferences. But even I, when I faced this situation like a few weeks ago for the first time, I realized that, I, that I'm not prepared. What we really need, we need to stop creating new and new and new tools that are copying each other and do not add functionality, but to focus on promoting and training people to use these tools. There is a fantastic tool, Siphon, Canadian uh, circumvention tool, uh, also actually co-financed by USAGM, uh, co-sponsored, uh, but um, uh, people uh, didn't have Siphon before uh, shutdown in Minsk happened, and they they had to um, bring USB sticks, you know, from from flat to flat, you know, with the application in order to install and to get to websites because there was not possible to download this this tool. It's just an example that there are tools that work. If they work, you know, let them do their job. Let us, activist journalists, reporters, to focus on promoting them and making sure that everyone who can, um, um, who can be in this situation know perfectly how it works. And then use rooms they were preparing for months, formally, for the shutdown. But what happened after they blocked their websites all their uh, uh, all their news became became inaccessible for a majority of readers, and only if on on the third day they realized they can post news on Telegram. Mm -hmm. Of course, now Belarusians will be more prepared. This experience of uh, working under shutdown it's very uh, educative. It's very uh, helpful to the majority. But I think this this situation could happen not only in Belarus but also in many other countries. And it has happened in many other countries. I mean, and we're seeing it happen in, in other countries. And it, it also reminded me a little bit of the Arab Spring uprisings when, you know, the Internet was cut off there and there was this chain of command between 
friends and colleagues who are based on the ground, but who are also based outside in different countries who were getting text messages uh, from folks on the ground so that they could tweet basically at the time when, you know, Twitter was still 140 characters. Um, they were sending these like short text messages that were then, you know, put on Twitter and, and at the time uh, when this was, this was popular. So I think in addition to what I'm hearing is in addition to knowing the technology that we have at hand and actually putting into practice and being prepared to use it, it also is important to know who your, you know, uh, colleagues are abroad who can, who can take over if, for instance, an inner shutdown um, takes place or yeah, blackout takes place, uh, a temporary. Um, absolutely. Arzu, I 100% agree with you. That's another issue that, um, that, that we didn't count it that we were not prepared to. So we have to build, you know, this um, backups infrastructure and we need the backup strategy and plan for each situation. So uh, for Belarus, we didn't have backup situation, neither for Radio Free Europe nor for local media. But for example, for Russia, because similar situation that we see in Belarus can happen in Russia. We, we, all, we, we know that Russia is learning from Belarus and all the repressive tactics that are used in in, in Russia, they are borrowed uh, from Lukashenko's regime. And, uh, and um, mm, to be prepared for a blackout and shutdown in Russia, we need to, uh, to, we need to have a clear plan uh, of, of, on different layers. Uh, internet accessibility, alternative way to distribute the, the, the information. If the internet is totally uh, switched off, uh, what other means we can employ? Uh, should it be satellite? Should it be Starlink internet uh, technologies uh, next year? Should it be traditional radio uh, transmitters? We need we need this plan. Uh, and um, uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, everything is cool, uh, but uh, it, it is cool for peaceful times, for times of uh, unrest. Um, no one will see the content and, and funny pictures you are, you are posting there. Well, I think it also has to do with um, the social media platforms themselves, right? I mean, I was just reading about um, Facebook not disclosing the evidence from, um, you know, year-long investigation in Myanmar. Um, and, you know, in cases similar like this, I mean, Facebook, when it was created, and when we look at Facebook now, it's not the same platform. Um, it serves different purpose and it's used by different groups and different communities for different reasons. And I think there may be a moment now to realize that or like platforms like Facebook in particular that has such a large following um, and such a, a large usage. Um, perhaps the users also within this field, you know, whether they're journalists or human rights defenders or activists, need to start realizing that perhaps Facebook is not the right platform, specifically because of all the loopholes that exist within the company, right? You know, we take community guidelines, for instance, that are deeply flawed when you look from the human rights perspective, or you take these kind of investigations that are happening currently in Myanmar and, you know, Facebook saying that, yes, we're ready to provide all the evidence and yet, you know, not having done that. Um, so I think there's also this, this um, there needs to be this change or, or shift in the mindset of, of people using these platforms that, you know, perhaps this is not, you know, perhaps Facebook is no longer the right tool um, for, for users, especially in contexts like 
Belarus or Azerbaijan or Turkey or elsewhere where legislation also, domestic legislation also, you know, kind of makes it much harder for, for users to use these social platforms for their, for their needs and for their, for their purposes. Um, Frenik, I have another question, uh, unless you want to add something to this. I just wanted to comment now that, for example, a uh, tool like Telegram, if, uh, if Facebook um, will launch this uh, joint messenger for WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook, that would be really uh, handy to have tool uh, of broadcasting and publishing as Telegram has. I know there are many implications uh, like security, you know, also this uh, potential loopholes privacy. for terrorists, extremists, uh, of course, privacy. And, uh, but, but at the same time, for, for countries like Belarus, that would be much, much helpful because Telegram still it's a niche. Of course, during the, the events like we have right now, it became the only platform working and available. But if Facebook had such broadcasting tool um, available, you know, we, we, we would uh, have much, much better time in, in terms of um, uh, distributing the information. Uh, I yes, I, I would be really curious to see that tool come to life because I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions on on, on its implications. Um, Frank, I want to uh, you know go even further out of, of of our current discussion and focus a little bit on on some of the research that you do, which is on um, you know Russian and Chinese efforts to control global media, um, you know, misinformation, and also you know this this war in, in trying to build, or maybe not a war, but more of a competition in between these countries to build their sovereign internet infrastructure, and you know how, especially in in light of what you mentioned of you know state media being silent during these last few days and in general, um, and the role of, of, you know, alternative media platforms. Um, how do you see the coverage of recent events um, in Russian media? I mean, I'm, I'm, I know the answer, but I would like to hear it from you as well. You know, in, in, light, of your, in light of your research and in light of what's happening and the silence of, of domestic media, um, I'm, were there any phenomenal news stories coming out of Russia? <laughs> Uh, actually, it's, it's very weird because uh, on, on the state level, Putin and Kremlin, they do not um, interfere like actively in the process, in the information agenda. But Putin was the first, among the first, who congratulated Lukashenko on the victory. And it seems for Putin himself, it's comfortable to have Lukashenko. But also we feel like we are closely monitored by Russian um, security services and agents, you know, and they, they have many scenarios for any development in Belarus, for sure. And even if there will be a revolt, uprising, and, uh, um, and Lukashenko will, uh, will fly to Rostov or Istanbul or Doha or wherever, Russia will definitely have its own plan for the country. Uh, but but there was no like there was no one consolidated position. This is for sure. What we see in Russian media, they were um, writing a lot about the protests. They really like the protests and both liberal media and state media. The Russian Lenta rule, I think on Sunday or Monday, they wrote hundreds of, of notes, hundreds of news about the protests, about the violence, about the rubber ballots, about everything. Um, and, and sometimes, you no, know, it sounded like they are on the side of, on the side of protesters. You know, they, they write not like journalists, but like, like uh, advocates. So you know, it's so cool, guys, you know, you know, they build barricades. Um, but I, I can't say that this is a part of the policy or just, you know, this uh, journalists uh, sitting in the newsroom, they are, they are shocked that it's possible in, 
uh, in um, uh, post-Soviet country, in neighboring Belarus, to, to observe things like this. Also, I think they compare it to Khabarovsk, because there are two major events happening at the same time. Uh, massive protests in Khabarovsk, uh, sparked by, by uh, the dismissal of, um, of governor, and, uh, and Belarus protests. And uh, uh, interesting, the dynamic of this protest uh, was very similar in the beginning, during the presidential campaign in Belarus and every weekend rally in, uh, in Khabarovsk. But now it totally changed. The character, you know, the messages. And I'm wondering to see how the, how the Russian media will, will be covering, you know, and will they continue comparing this protest or, or, or will stop? Because if, if real revolution and if, real, uh, if, if the situation like we have right now in Belarus will, will, will happen in Khabarovsk, that will be very tough times for Putin. And I think that they don't want to promote, you know, this, um, um, you know, this, this context of Belarus in relation to Khabarovsk protests, because other regions can also support. They also can see that the, the revolt is possible, and perhaps we also need to, to fight for our own interests. Okay, let me recap. So they were comparing it to Khabarovsk. Fascinating. I, I didn't know that comparison um, existed. So that's really interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, fine. Okay, this is going to be my last question, I hope. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, what's your view and vision now? You know, the things, the things are really hot right now in, in Belarus. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the importance of journalism. We talked about the um, importance of internet freedom. We talked about censorship and surveillance. And I'm just really curious. I mean, in all of your experience as an advocate, as a journalist, as a trainer, um, where are we headed? I mean, what are we looking at? Uh, you know, and considering the fact that we are um, in the middle of pandemic and, you know, countries are still struggling, especially countries in our region, in, in, in our geography. Um, what's your evaluation? I mean, this is a really big question and you can answer it from whatever angle you want, but I'm just really curious to hear, you know, your perspective, your, your view on, on, on this. Um, yeah, that's philosophical, existential question. <laughs> um, I think we, we are moving, we are entering the very, um, uh, we are entering the phase of turbulence and uh, rethinking of values, the standards, the rules of everything. Uh, the, the standards of profession, the standards of um, uh, consumption, the, the standards of um, relationship between societies and uh, between different groups in societies. Uh, I think also um, the, the social contracts uh, will be reviewed um, because of the digital impact and, and, uh, and the citizens um, got much more um, empowered uh, in contrast to what we had 10 and even 20 years ago. So technologies, they are on one hand, they're catalyzing uh, the processes, the, they democratize, democratize and, uh, um, and um, uh, strengthen economies. But on the other hand, you know, they disrupt a lot of uh, things that were established um, in the traditional societies for years and for, and for centers. Uh, in terms of digital uh, security and digital stability, I think uh, the internet will be uh, we'll get borders, uh, this Russian sovereign internet, you know, the Chinese model, which is uh, in place already for more than 10 years. Uh, it shows us that uh, there will not be a global internet anymore. 
and each country which will uh, will will offer its own services and its own small internet and uh, in order to get the application from other country or to get people from other country you will still uh, need to get some visa yeah. some virtual visa yes and this is uh, this is quite disturbing but i think this is uh, connected also to uh, state interests you know for example like like google and facebook uh, having offices in ireland you know they disrupt uh, disrupting economies and traditional economies uh, by paying taxes in different countries from their relocation and uh, in order to to solve this problem uh, governments want to impose more regulation on this and uh, bad guys they will use this moment in order to clean and filter content information and flows coming to them from uh, from other players and from um, from the sides they don't want to hear from uh, and I also think that um, uh, COVID it also shows the fragility of um, international community at all uh, it's impossible to develop a unified strategy. Uh, there is no trust between countries, people. Many states were lying about real numbers. The China, uh, China's position towards COVID from the very beginning put in danger the whole world. It means international uh, community, uh, organizations like United Nations, uh, uh, professional uh, associations, um, uh, intergovernmental um, uh, organizations they will they must be also reviewed and they perhaps will will be in crisis and uh, this also means there will be more instability there will be more conflicts like uh, both uh, internal and international and for us journalists activists is to uh, to stop these processes this um, segregation um, and and uh, to prevent uh, the world you know from from getting back into into Cold War time, uh, but on, on, on the digital space. Well, that's no easy task for journalists and activists uh, to save the world from <laughs> falling apart. Uh, but it's also really, uh, I think, a positive message uh, to end our, our, our interview. I really uh, appreciate and, and thank you for your time. And I really hope to see um, change. You know, I... In our countries, in our region, in our geography, change is really valuable. Um, and I think the new, this generation knows how valuable it is. And so, um, yeah, um, best of luck. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for you know, making the time for an interview. And I hope it was as interesting to you as, as it was for me. It was, it was indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Arzu. And thank you for M2000 for for having uh, this conversation that's very important, not just uh, for Belarus and not just for region, but, but for the whole world. I think Belarus is actually, um, uh, the situation in Belarus can impact a lot of things uh, globally, you know, and uh, the, this, the, the, the stuff and the problems we just raised uh, when talking to Arzu, they, they, um, they are spectacular, you know, because they, they show all the fragile, all the fragility of the systems and the relationship we, we, we are building for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.